Support. Support. Support for this podcast is brought to you by the, the Kellogg Innovation Entrepreneurship Initiative. Think bravely. Think differently. Think collaboratively. I met Joe uh, Dwyer, my partner, and he at the time was at OCA Ventures and was working on turning around one of their investments. It was a recruiting platform for millennials. And he wanted to turn it into a tech company, basically, and build kind of like an eHarmony for jobs type of thing. And his, his pitch was that, uh, his pitch was, um, this is probably not gonna work. We only have six months. You have to take a pay cut. Um, and yeah, the most likely outcome is that we're not gonna be able to turn this around in time. And I was like, that sounds great, let's do it. Hello and welcome to My Startup Journey, a show where we interview Northwestern entrepreneurs, builders, visionaries, and classmates. Today we're talking to Sean Johnson, founder of Digital Intent, VC at Founder Equity, professor of digital tools for entrepreneurship at Kellogg, and all around funny man. I have a prediction. Right now, software engineers are in hot demand for startups, and I believe that the next big jobs in hot demand will be data scientists and digital marketers. When I was in New Venture Launch, a lot of groups went around saying that they needed help on how to use Facebook, Google, Twitter, etc. And I took Professor Johnson's class and I learned so much that I've used in my own personal business. Now, while Professor Johnson is a guru at digital marketing, his starting path might surprise you. Okay. Where did you grow up? Colorado. I grew up in Colorado Springs. Um, went to uh, undergrad at Boulder. And then, uh, yeah, so I was there until I was 23 or so. Moved to Seattle briefly, like a week's notice. Um, just drove my car up there. <laughs> and uh, that didn't work out very well. But uh, uh, I ended up, uh, I was waiting tables at a seafood restaurant for like six months. I wanted to get into advertising. And I had a mentor who was, uh, he was kind of a big deal with the American Advertising Association. And he got me interviews at every ad agency in Seattle. Not that there's a lot of them, but um, you know, he got me in with the principals. And I, I was, I told him, you know, I'll do, I'll work in the mailroom, I'll do anything. And none of them, just none of them were hiring, or they just weren't hiring me. Um, so I ended up being a waiter uh, for six months, and then I went to a bachelor party in Las Vegas, and I met a girl. And she lived in Manhattan, and she was getting her master's at NYU in economics and worked at Ernst & Young. And uh, I lived in Seattle and was a waiter. And I thought, I, have no, I don't see why this can't work out. <laughs> so um, we, were talk we talked for a couple months, and then about two months after we met, I moved to New York City. <laughs> wow, you are a fast mover. Man. Yeah, well, Dang. you know. And she's my wife, so it worked out. Cool. What happens in Vegas gets married, so. So you get to New York yeah. in Manhattan. Yeah. Do you remember where you lived in Manhattan? Okay, so no, I, my office was on Broadway oh. uh, in Houston, but I lived in East Williamsburg, and this was before Williamsburg was cool. Yeah. So I lived in, we, we used to have these contests to, you know, when we'd have a couple of drinks about who had the worst apartment in New York, and I always, always won. Um, and I had third parties that would back it up. They're like, no, no, he is. 
by far the worst apartment ever. It was in the, it was in a basement. We had rats in our walls that would crawl around. It was cre- it was creepy. You would change clothes on your bed. You wouldn't walk on. The floor. It was the worst. But I was in New York, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Like I remember coming out of the train, and I brought. I had nothing with me when I got there except for um, my laptop bag, wow. and um, and a backpack. So I had some I had some clothes and a backpack and my laptop bag and. Um, How did you pay for rent? I flew out to New York with one job interview, and I got the job. I think I made thirty-five grand. What was the company? It was a company called Goldquest. So this was actually like it was like the needle in the haystack that sort of changed everything because they were they were a higher ed marketing company, and at the time they were buying um, or, or the universities would get your email address when you take the ACT or the SAT. And then they would give, they would hire companies like this company, GoldQuest, and GoldQuest would basically just spam the hell out of you to try to convince you that you should come to this school. And uh, I got hired as an account manager, but it was a needle in a haystack because pretty soon after we got there, um, we saw Friendster, the app, Friendster, mm-hmm. and we had a lot of conversations internally at the office about, you know, what if you built a, a social network for students? Um, that were coming to school because we knew that uh, yield was a problem with a lot of these colleges. So you get accepted um, at these the, this tier of school, only like 30% of the kids that were accepted would actually attend. And so, and they didn't know which 30%. And so we thought, well, what if we could build a platform that would get students that were all coming together talking before they got to campus, would that make a difference? Because um, you get accepted to like, Montclair State and William Patterson or whatever, they're basically the same school and you don't really know why one's better than the other one and you don't know anybody and you're nervous and so we thought if you could make some friends before you get there that you'd be more likely to go there. Makes sense. And nobody had built anything like Web 2.0e before and um, there was an opportunity there to kind of step up and I had a a design background um, and I was doing some design for some of my clients kind of on the side at night and then... uh, and so there was just this needle in a haystack thing where we got to build it. And the first version was in Flash and it was terrible and nobody used it. And, um, but we built an app and we felt really good about ourselves. And then by version four or five, we felt, we felt pretty good. And uh, that app ended up being on 300 or so campuses. And then the company ended up getting bought by a private equity firm. And um, I ended up becoming a creative director. So it wasn't, yeah, yeah. And it was different, it was not, what I pictured <laughs> a career director to be, but I still felt like I had checked the box. That how, was a pretty good how old were you at the time? When that happened, 26, wow. I guess, maybe. Were you married at that time? I wasn't. Um, no, we were dating. What I remember feeling most excited about was, was actually my relationship with her mm. because I felt like she had no, I had no business being with her <laughs> until that happened and I felt like there was this window of time where I had sort of um, she had taken a chance on this completely raw piece of a person she took a risk right and and you know uh, so I think I think that felt really good that I could go out to events with her colleagues and be somebody. Yeah. I wanted to do design, yeah. but I wasn't good at it. And so I talked to the design director at the time and I said, I want to do design at night. 
and, uh, and you don't have to pay me, I just want to get practice, and you tell me that this sucks or whatever. And so for about a year and a half, I did that. Very cool. And um, the switch happened when we realized that we needed to move away. Everything that we did was in Flash at the time, and we realized that we needed to move away from Flash towards HTML and CSS and all that kind of stuff. And I had happened to know HTML and CSS from my little crappy business back in Colorado, and I was the only one really that knew it. And so that is part of what led to me being able to kind of have that opportunity. Very cool. I remember reading a bunch of your posts that you put on LinkedIn. For instance, you had yeah. talked about needing to just grind it out. And that's something that you and I talked about when I took your class about people need to realize that this is hard stuff. And yeah. I remember you bringing up how you would get up early and go to Starbucks and just crank out mm -hmm. content or whatever you're doing. Mm -hmm. what, what, what was that for? Was that in New York still? That was in New York. I would go to Starbucks at 6 a.m. when they'd open and I'd try to work for three hours. Felt like I was a relatively big fish in a small pond. And now I was in New York and I was surrounded by people that were better than I was. And the only lever that I really thought I could pull at that time was just to try to outwork people. I think it helped me get noticed by the founders a lot faster. I got promoted really, really rapidly, but that was not common. And people that were my peers were suddenly not my peers. I would tell them like this is I don't I don't think there was a secret to it like this is what I did I'd volunteer for anything and I would try to figure out a way to turn a crappy project into a less crappy project and then I would go in early or stay late to try to execute on it. Now after New York Sean and his wife moved to Chicago because she has a job offer. When he gets here he meets someone who would eventually be his business partner and who is also a professor at Kellogg. I met Joe uh, Dwyer my partner and he at the time was at OCA Ventures and was working on turning around one of their investments. It was a recruiting platform for millennials and he wanted to turn it into a tech company basically and build kind of like an eHarmony for jobs type of thing. And his, his pitch was that, uh, his pitch was, um, this is probably not gonna work. We only have six months. You have to take a pay cut um, and yeah, the most likely outcome is that we're not going to be able to turn this around in time. And I was like, that sounds great. Let's do it. And then uh, our third partner was the head of technology at the company in New York. And I called him up after I left. And I convinced him to come too. And so he joined us, the CTO, and he moved out here. Um, and so it was the three of us. And there was a whole team that was already there. We all went out to dinner and we talked about, well, you know, what do we want to do? And... Um, we had a product team and no product to build. And um, we put out some feelers and just said, hey, um, you know, we have a product team now if anybody wants help. And we didn't really have aspirations of building a consulting company or anything like that. It was just sort of, mm -hmm. we thought of ourselves as startup guys and this was gonna be something we we're gonna do until we find like our next great idea. Yeah, we started Digital Intent at Pete Miller's in Steakhouse up in Evanston. Yeah, Evanston, Yeah, phenomenal. I'd love to talk about this. I took Joe Dwyer's class yeah. last quarter yeah. about building the right team that you need mm -hmm. to make innovation and entrepreneurial yeah. uh, teams. How do you each complement each other? Well, so we have different, you know, we had, we had skills that were different. So I was kind of the product design guy. Joe was sort of like business model strategy and Matt was technology. And so we had a nice kind of symbiosis there. I think we also had... Um, Matt's very steady, very organized, very methodical in how he gets things done. He's able to, he's a really, really gifted operator. Um, I think Joe and I are both more, 
you know, vision-y, get people excited. Um, all three of us are good in kind of a sales context, but in different sorts of ways. Um, Matt just makes people trust him. He's got like a deep voice and just speaks from a place of competence. And Joe gets everybody excited. And, um, you know, I think I just make self-deprecating jokes. I think that's probably my value there. But, uh, um, and I'm just not, I'm not afraid to kind of go out and talk to people. Um, so I think it was good in a lot of ways. And I think, I think the underlying all of it has been just we implicitly trust each other. And um, we, you have fights and um, difficulty, and it's a lot like a marriage that way. Um, but all of all three of us know that the other they, the other guys have your back, and um, and that is a really really hard thing to right. replicate. I think in a lot of ways that was sort of dumb luck. I had known Matt for a long time, you know, working in New York and. Um, and I knew him even prior to that, uh, but uh, we were really lucky that the three of us sort of got along. When people approach me and they say, hey, I'm looking for a co-founder, and they're asking for advice about like matchmaking services and things like that, um, I don't know how you do it. And, and it, that, that microwaving approach, like if you have an idea and you really need to pursue it, I guess you don't really have a choice, but that whole we're going to go speed date co-founders personally scares the hell out of me because it's like that that I've seen I've seen that movie enough times to know that that's one of the biggest risks is the partners don't get along or they're not on the same journey Um, and I was really really fortunate that the three of us were on the same page about a lot of stuff and we talked a lot about I mean that was that was the bulk of the conversation at P. Miller's when we started the company Um, we knew each we knew enough about each other uh, to know what each other brought to the table that whole dinner was about what kind of a life do you want to have with this and I remember you know Matt 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 wanted to work with his friends and do something like that that was more important to him than kind of anything else Um, for me it was I had you know I had just had my son and I said you know if I we've done the startup thing a couple of times I've I've you know the whole 6 a.m. thing like I've done that if, if we build a really successful company, but I don't know my kids or my wife, then none of this is worth my time. And so it, as long as we're architecting a business the way that we want, why not at least try to figure out a way to do it in a way where you have some semblance of balance. Um, and so I think a lot of that, we had really, really candid conversations at the very beginning about that kind of stuff um, and where we wanted to go and all of those kinds of things. Um, so I think that the trust component was probably the most important part. What did you do for either, I guess, did you need capital? Did you need to raise? We bootstrapped it. So we, cool. we, um, we opened the bank account with a check from our first client. Did you have an office? No, the first year we didn't. We worked out of uh, coffee shops, which was hilarious because when you're trying to hire people, we were to my office. Yeah. We, we, I, I interviewed someone at an Argo tea mm-hmm. and, uh, we were at a table here, and then we were interviewing, and they were like, hey, would you like to meet Joe? Yeah, sure, and then we just switch. Um, yeah. I don't think that she took the job. So but when did you go, though, from being this services side to morphing into founder equity? So Joe had had this idea for a while about could you create an alternative type of fund that provided uh, cash and talent? And the idea was he saw when you raise money the majority of that money goes towards people. 
And if you make even one wrong hire early on, like if you have the wrong CTO, that's a, that's a big problem. Because in a lot of cases, you don't realize that they don't, they don't actually know how to code. <laughs> you don't know that. Um, or uh, yeah, and if you make a mishire, the new person that comes in is gonna have their own way of doing things. And it's just, it's a huge, huge risk. And so um, he wanted to try to create an alternative fund structure that could de-risk that. And um, I thought, hey, great idea, but we don't have the bodies to successfully deliver on that. And uh, so it was about two years in or two and a half years in, we were up to 25 or so people. And we're like, oh, we actually have that team now. Let's think about it. And at that time, Joe had a lot of time to have his, he's sort of a beautiful mind type of person. And uh, the concept um, grew um, in kind of nuance. Uh, he knew he knew that because we were first time uh, GPs that fundraising would be a challenge. Um, and so he deliberately created a structure that's uh, very different to kind of alleviate some of that or to kind of get in the door. So most funds are based off of a two and 20 model. You raise, mm -hmm. you get 2% management fee, 20% carry in the back end. So we have no management fee and we have no traditional carry. We make an investment in these companies. We bundle that up and do a portfolio and then we sell off our ownership. So we own basically the exact same thing that our investors do. And the only way we make money is if these things are successful. And so we, and we could do that because we had a consulting business that could pay our salaries. Um, you know, we trusted each other and it's been, it's pretty, pretty, pretty fun ride. When we return, more laughs and more insights from Professor Johnson about teaching digital marketing at Kellogg and advice for you. If you had two versions of a website, how do you know which one people would more quickly understand? Could they find the information they were looking for? How long would it take them? Built for UX testing, Usability Hub allows you to see which version of your site or app users prefer. Where would they click? How many do the action you want? And much more. At $2.50 per targeted tester, it's a great way to gain insight about your designs and user interfaces. Sign up at our EBC site to get 40% off of three months or do a pay-as-you-go model. Hey, if you're an entrepreneur or working for a startup and you're looking to grow your business, stay organized, or help with presentations, you should probably listen right now. In this segment, we call this Tools, and it's a chance for me to tell you about some cool tools that can help you do all that. One of the most frustrating things about digital marketing is wondering what are my competitors doing? How are they doing on Google AdWords and are they better than me? Well, Moz.com is a great tool that allows you to enter websites of your competition to compare yourself. Simply go to moz.com, that's Moz.com, and try it out by typing in a search keyword you think would be used for your business. You can then see the monthly search volume for that search term. And if you have an account, you can see how your competitor's websites are doing. It's pretty simple. Just copy the website URL from your competitor and paste it into the search box on Moz.com. Then what you can see is you can see how do my competitors do in terms of some metrics like domain authority, page authority, and linkbacks. Try it out now at moz.com forward slash free dash SEO dash tools and try it for yourself. We are back. I'm so excited to be interviewing Professor Sean Johnson because not only is he a great success story in terms of his job and personal life, but he's also a great professor and tells us about how he got involved with Kellogg. So Linda had come over um, from Booth. I had been a guest speaker a couple of times for Craig Wortman's class at Booth. Um, 
she was looking for, Troy was teaching the digital marketing track and wanted um, another, he didn't, he didn't, they wanted more sections than he wanted to take on and so they needed another person. And Joe reached out to her and Craig reached out to her, I think within the same day. And uh, that was sort of how I got on her radar. And then I came out and I, you know, I guess lectured for one of her classes and that was sort of what happened. Um, again, I mean, it's just one of those, <laughs> You know, you have these needle in a haystack things, and I was super lucky. I mean, that was written, that was one of my goals as, in my career was to be a professor somewhere, and I thought like state college or community college or something like that. Oh, man, you were and just then, knocking it out. Well, I just remember coming home to my wife and being like, "Hey, Kellogg approached me about maybe being able to teach there." And Did you celebrate? It, it hadn't happened yet. No. <laughs> kind of she was like, "She was like, that's amazing," and I was like, "Yeah, you know, I'm sure they'll find out that." <laughs> So, you know, and I can't read. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, but no, I've been. It's been really fun. Um, How long have you been a professor now? Jeez, four or five years. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, Were you nervous at your first class? Oh, I was super nervous. I, I feel like you would be nervous that people are these Kellogg kids super, are going to judge you. Super nervous, and I, I, I have a, I have a thing where if I feel if I feel nervous, I tend to overcompensate, and my. My teaching style has um, came kind of out of that. I mean, I the, the amount of material I go through in these five weeks is pretty yeah, it's Im- immense. Um, and that was, I think, in the very beginning, it was one. I think it was I was nervous, and I thought, well, if I go through a lot of material, they can't say he didn't know anything. <laughs> um, but the other the other part of it was I had gone to you know I hadn't taken other classes in graduate school, but I had been to conferences and workshops and things like that, and gone home and. Mm-hmm wrote down like three lines in my notebook and like, what the, what the hell was that? And so I wanted them to, I wanted the students that, that really want to know this stuff and especially students that are actually working on startup ideas. Um, at the end of that five weeks, I want them to know everything that I know. And, and that was sort of the goal. And, um, and I've had to adjust over the years and figure stuff out and realize that maybe, maybe 2,000 slides is too much, but you know, maybe 1,200 is the sweet spot. <laughs> I remember, when I took your class, mm-hmm. your first opening statement was, here are five reasons why you shouldn't take this class. And I don't know if this was one of the reasons, but you did preface it with, I have 200 slides today. Yeah. And everyone, I just remember hearing everyone go, <laughs> <laughs> like, I was like, let's see what happens. I'm so excited to so what's gonna happen. Yeah. Justin Bieber, just popping through. Right, right. No, I tried to make it, I did stand up when I was in college for three years, and so I, I um, you now know why I stopped because uh, <laughs> uh, punchlines are good a good thing to have it's a good skill to have right. if you're going to be funny is to have jokes that people laugh at and I didn't have that but uh, it hasn't stopped me from trying and this is my outlet for it and so um, and I like having you know and my slides are designy and my slides have you know I try to have it's very much a presentation, not a download this, read it, and under pick it up type of right. class, which I actually really, really like. Right. I've had and I've I've had to adjust that too and provide you know now I have it could be a book at this point, but I mean to to give folks afterwards the you know annotated versions of the slides and things like that. But yeah, it's uh, it was an effort to try to be as engaging as I could, um, given the the material, <laughs> you know. I remember reading one of your LinkedIn posts where you had mentioned that you had 
realized that being a professor at a very good school was mm -hmm. something that was now part of your identity. Mm -hmm. And then you had talked about, you know, we talked about a lot of you as being yeah. this identity of I have sometimes this, yeah. am, I, am I in the wrong context? Are we even talking about your wife? You were saying, mm -hmm. man, am I not even up to her standard? Sure. And all so I, I can see that. And yeah. I remember when, when that you wrote that, um, you had been very vulnerable and you showed people that this was something that you really cared about. And sure. I remember if it was taken away from you, it would, it would kind of sting. Did you think that, I guess, was there a plan B to, to replace that if that was ever taken away from you? Um, you know, uh, I've, I've, I like teaching, um, and so I think I would have. I think I would have tried to figure out a way to do that, uh, through yeah, through workshops or writing or um, you know. Joe has said for a long time that I need to turn that into a book, um, that kind of thing. Um, it is funny though how much identity matters to people. I think it's just it's more often than not like there's there's there is value I think in focus and there's attention here that I think is maybe a little bit hard to resolve, but. I think that a lot of times these identity things prevent you from being open to stuff. Yeah. I think what, what helps me is realizing that nobody actually cares. <laughs> Just about you in general. Like nobody cares about you. Like they're not, no one's sitting there thinking about you. When you're like, what, what will people think if I do this? Nothing. They're not thinking about you. And so like they're thinking about themselves and their own lives and, what and their challenges and their struggles and all that kind of thing. And so, um, the more I've been able to realize that, it's been liberating. And it's like, worst thing that happens is that nobody notices, and that's fine. I think a lot of people find it really surprising. But it's just like the worst thing that'll happen is they ignore it. And they're not going to be, you know, 10 years later, when you're some person, there's not going to be this other person that stands up with a microphone and says, oh, Sean, 10 years ago, Sean sent me a cold email. And it was really poorly worded. So I think... <laughs> Nobody, nobody cares. Nobody's thinking bet, about it. I bet Craig Wartman would. Yeah, he's maybe, pretty sharp. Maybe, he, yeah, he's maybe keep it in his. That's true. Maybe Craig would. Well, but like with, we check in with Twitter. So my class, you know, would, right. the part of it is getting used to the tools. So I'd have people check in on Twitter, and there would be people every every semester. There's someone that says, "This makes me really uncomfortable." Um, you know, I don't know if this is what I want to be known for for my brand or whatever. And I'm like, man, man, nobody. First of all, you have three followers. <laughs> And it's your mom. Yeah. <laughs> your two you don't realize. I mean, and that's one of the, you know, when you, you were talking about how hard this stuff is. I mean, it's, everyone is so careful around protecting the, their brand for their startup or whatever as if they have one chance. And the reality is brand risk is a problem when you're, Air, when you're Airbnb today. Brand risk is not a problem when you're Airbnb, you know, six, seven years ago. And you're, you're showing up at the... Democratic National Convention and handing out cereal boxes with right, people's right. faces on, right? Like, um, the hardest thing in the world when you're getting started is to get anybody to care. The mountain of information that is flowing at them, they don't remember you. They don't care about you. You have to give them a really, really strong reason. And so, um, which sounds daunting, but it's also liberating. It means, like, take some risks because. Right now, nobody knows who you are, and the worst thing that will happen is people will continue to not know who you are. Like, it's, not, it's not a risky thing. Yeah. You know? For Kellogg students, like, yeah. what, what have you noticed and what advice would you give to them? 
Um, I think the biggest one would probably be what we were just talking about, saying um, all of the, and I try to make a point of this, because a lot of the people that take the class don't have a startup that they're actively working on, but almost everything that we talk about is just as relevant from like a personal branding perspective. And I think about how I got to know, how the reason why I got invited to speak at Craig Wortman's class was because I had a deck on digital marketing that did really well on SlideShare and Craig knew about it and so that, that's how I got invited. Um, I've been invited to speak in Nice, you know, or in Rome or in Portugal or whatever and all of that stuff comes from putting yourself out there and um, creating content and um, being aggressive about outreach and all those kinds of things and all of those tools are free. All it takes is some time and um, and a willingness to kind of put yourself out there and to take a risk and find your voice and all those kinds of things. And, you know, like I was saying, I mean, start a, start a blog, start writing on Medium. People grossly overestimate how much impact one piece of content is going to have, especially when they're starting out, right? They're afraid to put that pen to paper and hit publish because they're afraid of what people will think. Mm. And again, no one is going to read it. <laughs> They're just not, like not in the beginning. Um, you have so much time to figure this stuff out and to find your voice and to, to build momentum. Um, I, I think of it like you're building a house and every day your job is just to show up and to put a brick down and it's going to take longer than you think. It might be a five-year journey, it might be a 10-year journey, but if you show up every day, let's say you wrote an article every week and let's say you sent out 30 cold pieces of outreach just to get to know to meet people and all those kinds of things. And let's say you were pretty disciplined about following up with them and staying in touch and all those kinds of things. The impact that those three activities would have on your career or on your startup or on whatever over a five-year period of time, over a one-year period of time, will, would blow your mind. And it's available to everybody and it's free. And, uh, and yet, I've said that, I've given some version of that advice in every single class I, I can't think of a person that's done it, <laughs> you know, um, and I don't know why. I think I think I think part of it might be um, identity stuff. Um, it would not surprise me if most of the people who are taking classes at Kellogg were straight A students, um, did did amazing in all their tests were really successful in their early careers and they've never really truly failed and so there's this fear there of like this new thing where the most likely scenario is failure right like a startup most yeah. likely you're going to fail writing a blog post and putting it out there it's most likely not going to catch on and you know become viral and change your life um so how are you willing someone who has always had success with everything that they've ever done are they willing to subject themselves to the soul-crushing, at times, slog of just sort of putting yourself out there again and again and again and again um, and realizing that that'll get you there, but it's going to take time? Um, I don't, and I, I, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. I'm not sure. But that would be my advice. would be to stop, stop being afraid and um, consider it an investment in your career. Um, that will more than pay for itself, but it might take you five years or 10 years to do it. What is 
next for you? It's, it's interesting to hear your life story on these patterns. Yeah. Where, for instance, it's almost uh, this theme of not having a clear, having, having a, a goal, but not having a clear target, if that makes sense. For instance, you're like, I want to do advertisement. <clears throat> I'm going to go to Seattle, but it's not to be a, I, need, I don't need to be an ad manager. I just want to get in. And then from there it was, I go to New York and it's like, I want to just get into this space even more. Oh, and there it happened. And even here you come back to Chicago and it's, I want to just start this, this company where we do services. And then it, but you, your goal is also, but I also want to be able to spend time with my family, provide yeah. for my family. They just, boom, you hit VC and all this other stuff. And even with your, with your wife, right? It was yeah. like, I just want to be with someone that I really love. And yeah. boom, you got found this love your life in, in Vegas, um, doing body shots probably. <laughs> But it's it's like, all right, but it, it doesn't sound like you have the next thing I need to do is to become governor or anything like that. Do you have a, right. you have a path or plan or anything you want to do next? Or are you just kind of going with it? You know, it's interesting. I, I, um, I have a, I, I am working, I'm in the process actually of working through my relationship to goals. And I, when I graduated college, I wrote down a list of 10 things I wanted to do. And be a professor was on that list. Being a creative director was on that list. Having a company that at, at, at the time a million dollars in revenue sounded like this amazing, right? right? Uh, and it's, you know, for many people it is, but it's, it's, it's not that hard to do. Um, but I checked off, I started checking these things off. And you, know, you kept asking me, do I celebrate or whatever? And um, I don't. And what I learned in doing those things is that nothing about your life really changes that dramatically, right? Like when you, you, when your company hits a million dollars in revenue, it feels exactly the same as it did before, you know? Um, all of those things uh, are not going to give, at least me, they, they did not give me this feeling that I thought they would give me of this like summit and this euphoria and all of those kinds of things. And so last year, I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. I'm like, well, what do you do? Do you just set new ones mm -hmm. that you know are going to make you feel the same way? Um, all that kind of stuff. And I, I haven't landed on where I'm, where I'm at with that yet. Um, I know that I really like what I'm doing. I know that um, both sides. I, I, I love consulting and working on new projects. I love talking to startups and trying to find, trying to figure out ones that I think are going to be successful. I love helping our fund companies. I love teaching. Um, and I like, I like being with my kids. Um, I know that there will come a point where my kids are uh, at activities and all those kinds of things and they don't want to spend as much time with me. And, um, and I think at that point, I think there's some other, there's some other stuff that I think I'll want to, want to do. Um, so I'm trying to not lose that feeling <laughs> and to be okay with that tension of like, there's, you know, that there's more, um, and I think the other thing I'm trying to do is get a lot more comfortable with the process and sort of realize what I, what I, what I did learn last year and thinking a lot about it was I enjoyed, I enjoyed preparing for class. I enjoy working on the slides. I enjoy reading people's homework. I enjoy sitting down in front of a screen and writing in the, in the process of writing a new post. Um, I enjoy sitting down with a client and trying to sell them and trying to get them to trust me and to understand, like, to, to be an advisor to them. Mm -hmm. um, 
the accomplishment of the goal is a, is not as important to me as the, the that process and just sort of being in the journey. Yeah, and being trying to be present. Um, and it's almost at a point where I'm trying to have it be like a balloon almost that you just let up in the air. So it's like you, did you show up today? Were you focused? Did you work with the level of intensity that you know you're capable of? Um, and when you go home at night and you have, you know, you have a glass of wine with your wife or you, you know, you watch Game of Thrones or whatever, do you feel like you earned it? Um, and as long as I do that and I keep doing that, I feel like most of this cool stuff that's happened in my life has been serendipity anyway, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I didn't think I was going to be a VC, right? That never, never in a million years would have occurred to me. Um, most of that stuff has just been do show up and do work your hardest and do your best every day and cool stuff's going to kind of come. And uh, so, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you ask me in six months, I may want to be governor. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> doubt it would be that. Um, yeah, we would be in terrible spot. Yeah. The only other thing I would say is I've been, I, I, I spent a fair amount of time thinking about, well, maybe my goals should be um, more, uh, I, I tried writing a little bit more like altruistic goals or almost like character goals. Right. And that didn't really work very well for me. Not that I'm like, maybe I am a terrible person. I don't know. Um, what I kind of realized was that I was writing down things that I thought um, I should write down rather than things that actually got me energized. And so... Um, I had a little bit of a detour there where I was trying to do stuff. And um, and I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know what that says about me, but um, I did learn, I think your likelihood of accomplishing something is gonna probably go up pretty dramatically if it's, if it's what you actually believe rather than what you think other people want you to believe. There you have it. That's Professor Sean Johnson. Husband, father, son, brother, gymnast, VC, and professor. Personally, I love this class a lot. It's one of those classes where the more you put in, the more you'll get out. I used what I learned for my personal businesses, and that's what has helped me be successful. Oh, and one thing. Sean mentioned that he has a list of accomplishments he wanted to do and has done all of them except one. The last thing to be mentioned in the New York Times. I'm John Lee, and you're listening to My Startup Journey. Please leave a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play, as it would mean a lot to the EBC Club. But until next time, keep dreaming. Can you talk to your microphone? I can. How do you, how do you, what did you have for breakfast this morning? <laughs> Oats. And what did you have, I sir? I don't eat breakfast. Trick question. Intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting. So a couple tricks too. Is there a way to do it where I uh, don't have to do any exercise <laughs> and eat whatever I want? Uh, it's called liposuction. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking about like just chopping off my leg. Oh, that works out. Yeah, the saw diet. I wrote it. So I wrote a book when I was 22. <laughs> Swear to God, I wrote a 170-page book on how to get a job. This was when I was doing my. Yeah, I did, and I sold like. 10 copies online. I made a website. I called it a personal success system instead of a book. (laughs) 
but it was called a bright red package. I'll send it to you. Afterwards. I would, I would it's, love it. It's pretty good. It's it. about personal branding and building up your Rolodex and like taking projects and making them dope. Like I it gotta, was. I gotta build up my Rolodex. How did you propose to your wife? And uh, we were in Colorado visiting my parents, and we drove up into the mountains, and I got a cabin. And but she didn't think anything of it because I, I do, I do that kind of stuff all the time. So I'm like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, so she, yeah, she had no idea that it was coming and we were just exchanging presents. And uh, I remember I got her a book. The book you wrote? No, yeah, that would have been even better.